So I'm not completely convinced, but I'm reasonably certain that these are the most compassionate lines ever sung in the history of rock and roll. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? It's, of course, from Eleanor Rigby. It's about the painful mystery of loneliness. Because lonely people are not just cut off in the sense of physical absence, although that's part of it. Lonely people are cut off at the deepest level from themselves, from their origins, and from their destinies, unsure of them. Loneliness is about so much more than just the absence of companionship. It goes deeper than that. Loneliness hurts because it can make us wonder whether we, in the deepest sense, matter. Whether anyone sees our existence. Now, if you ever had the experience of being lonely and that loneliness has been relieved and has been filled in your heart with a deeper sense of compassion and companionship, it's kind of like air being pumped into a flattened soccer ball. Literally, that's what the word depression means, depressare in the Latin, to be pressed down. And so when loneliness abates and companionship follows, it is like getting the air and the bounce back in our being. I think of the most notable recent big story about loneliness that was relieved. We all remember Susan Boyle. Showed the YouTube here. I actually preached on the phenomenon. And it dawned on me, whenever there is a story like Susan Boyle, so powerful that so many people buy into it, are drawn to it, are inspired by it, it has to do with some corresponding image or archetype that already exists. And I got it. Susan Boyle is Eleanor Rigby. Think about it. Both live in the UK. Both are spinsters. Both, at least from what we can glean in the song, Eleanor Rigby, and we know this is true of Susan Boyle, were unrecognized volunteers at a small, out-of-the-way country church that not too many people cared about. It fits. Susan Boyle is... Eleanor Rigby, with, we can hope, at least this time, a happier ending. Jury's still out a little bit in terms of how she handles her fame, but Eleanor Rigby with a happier ending. But of course, not all loneliness abates, and not as an internet phenomenon for so many of us. And that brings me today to the movie I'm going to be preaching on for Spiritual Cinema, it's called Wendy and Lucy, as you can see. And at the simplest level, the way to describe it is this. It's about a girl and her dog. That's a life, a couple days in the life of a girl and her dog. Now, Michelle Williams, who some of you might know from Brokeback Mountain, and if you had a guilty TV viewing pleasure in the late 90s, and you want to cop to watching Dawson's Creek, not that I'm going to do that, that's how she first cut her teeth and made her fame. She gives an unbelievable performance in this movie, one of the best I have ever seen. It is a deceptively simple movie about companionship, loneliness, sacrifice, tenacity, unforeseen kindness, and also a deep vulnerability. Wendy is the young woman, and Lucy is her dog. Wendy is making her way to the canneries of Alaska, 
up through the Pacific Northwest, trying to find a better life. She has with her everything she owns, her dog, her car, and all the money she has in the world, just over $500 that she meticulously watches and makes sure that she will be able to arrive in Alaska to get the job that she hopes will deliver her to at least a more secure, if not happier, level of existence. Now, if this was a big Hollywood movie, we would find out at some point some great big secret told in flashback that somehow there was a reason for why Wendy was left just with Lucy. But all we know is this, a little hint here and there about a broken family relationship, but that's it. We just know that she is cut off and desperate and trying to make her way to a better life. The director, Kelly Reichardt, she tells the story with restraint and without embellishment. And because of this, because it doesn't go in for easy or cheap sentiment or sentimentality, it makes Wendy's and Lucy's tragedy and tenacity and vulnerability so much more powerful. Where the movie really starts to get going is when Wendy's car breaks down. And when your car breaks down, and your car is your home, it means that you're homeless as well, too. And Wendy, knowing that Lucy is hungry, makes a very foolish decision. She decides to shoplift in this town where her car is broken down, where there are no jobs. It's a mill town outside of Portland where the entire economy, that looks like the entire populace, is depressed. And she's arrested for the shoplifting. And through it, she ends up losing Lucy. Eventually, at the end, they are reunited. And she continues on her way to Alaska, but under very, very changed circumstances. And her journey, her hero's journey, becomes even more tenuous. Now, like the lonely people that McCartney sang about in Eleanor Rigby, we don't know quite where Wendy came from, and we don't know... And neither does she exactly where she's going. The movie, because it's so quiet, and a lot of it takes place next to rail yards, for me it conjured up images of the Great Depression in the midst of this Great Recession that we are in, of hobos riding the rails, and of people who are lost and trying to find their way to a better life, those people leaving the Dust Bowl and heading to California. Its virtue in the movie is its simplicity. And it's honesty. It allows us to see that Lucy is not some archetype of some saint. She makes unwise choices. But she's basically a very good person, trying to do the right things. She is simply just lost. Like thousands, like hundreds of thousands of people are in America today. I watched the movie this past week during the Sotomayor hearings. In the context of this larger controversy about merits and who deserves what, and what's the proper place or role or not of affirmative action in our lives. And this is a deeper conversation, not just about legally trying to achieve equality, but a deeper conversation and debate that sometimes is so difficult about who deserves what, based on our actions or our backgrounds, who deserves support, and who will get the just rewards. And when Wendy fails and falls through rotten luck and poverty and one very unwise decision, 
What we see in the movie is that there really is no one there to catch her. There is really no one there to hold her aloft entirely. And so for me, what the movie did is it prompted a deeper reflection on what holds me, what holds all of us aloft when we fail or when we fall. Now, ironically, right before she's nabbed for the shoplifting, shoplifting dog food so she can feed Lucy, she ironically says to her pooch, don't be a nuisance. We don't need that right now. Her loneliness is about invisibility. And it's really a double-edged sword of this invisibility because if she is invisible in her loneliness, then perhaps she might keep herself far from harm. But as she is far from harm, she is also far from help. As she protects, so she is isolated. Yes, she makes an unwise decision, but she suffers the consequences perhaps very, very differently than some of us might suffer the consequences, perhaps. Brought to mind an episode in my life that I'm not very proud of. Part of this job is honesty. I was 19 years old, living in New York City, drinking beer out of some brown paper cups. And with a friend of mine, we were trying to catch a train to go downtown to see a show. And we hopped the turnstile. And as that train pulled into the 77th Street and Lexington Station, I could see blue right on that train. And the cop saw me and saw what we were doing, immediately took us over to the side. Three infractions, absolutely blatant. Fair skipping, open container, and underage. The cop took us to the side, asked for our IDs, my friend and me, talked to us sternly, gave us a warning, sort of deliberated for a while to himself by the side, sort of like, you know, to make us nervous for a little bit. And he came back and said, dump out the beer, go back through the turnstile, pay the full fare, and get out of here. Other than the nervousness, my friend and I, we got off scot-free. But I do have to ask, and I still wonder, if my skin was a darker pigment, if I didn't live at such a good address that was so clear when the cop checked my ID, if I wasn't articulate in the language that the cop spoke, or... I knew, as I was trained to do, to show proper deference to authority. Would I have gotten off as scot-free as I did? I doubt it. I don't think so. Some of us, because of who we are, are born into far more privilege in life than others. And some of us, because of what we do, are extended far more privileges than others in life. And until we, I think, this is the most I want to say about it, until we, I think, as a country, get honest about the fact of equality, and it is not equal for everyone, we will just keep arguing and arguing and arguing with each other without an adequate understanding of the differences in the ways that we are equal or not. But getting support, societal or otherwise, is not just about evading punishment. It's about receiving grace when we struggle. There is really in the movie one character who offers this kind of grace to Wendy. It's a security guard who himself had worked in the mill many years before, and he's working a job that maybe, maybe pays him 7 or $8 an hour, and he's trying to support his family. He offers Wendy his cell phone 
so she can try and receive calls from the local pound to see if Lucy might be found. And their final interaction, he gives Wendy a gift. Shielding himself from his wife, who wouldn't like that he was giving this money away to a total stranger. He says, here, take this. It's the most I can give you. Seven dollars. Seven dollars is what he can spare and what he can give her. Ultimately, it will help a little bit. It might be a meal for Wendy. But in the deeper level, there is no one there with her in the movie who can normalize, who can make her feelings of loneliness seem not quite so much about abandonment. Reminds me that when I was just a couple years before my misadventure that I told you about, just a few years younger than Wendy is in the film, I was going through an incredibly isolated, very, very lonely time in my life, in high school. And one of the most important people in my life said to me very blatantly, very openly, very honestly, you're going to be lonely for a while, you will learn how to deal with it, and then you will be okay. This was all I needed to hear. See, when someone sees you in your loneliness, it is not about taking it all away immediately. It is about acknowledging the value of your presence and saying, I see you. And in being seen, my loneliness and my anxiety. Because it's not just loneliness. It's the fact that in we are lonely, we think perhaps that this is a terminal state of being. That it will never go away. And our isolation will never end. This person in my life gave me permission to feel what I was feeling, acknowledge that it was real, and because of that, I started to feel better. And so I ask you this morning, when you fail, when you fall, who or what holds you aloft? Sometimes in very, very small ways it might be, who or what holds you aloft so that you are able to keep those bonds and connections with life and don't feel that your isolation is just interminable. And perhaps you are feeling alone, isolated, abandoned this morning. Well, the quickest thing I can tell you is to look around. Look around you. This is a great place to start. Letting some of that loneliness be healed. To feel lonely is to feel so vulnerable. Wendy and, of course, the dog Lucy are so vulnerable not because Wendy is weak. In fact, she's far more resourceful in this movie than I would know how to be if I were stuck in a similar circumstance. It's just that she is so alone. It brought to mind for me the words from Ecclesiastes and the Hebrew Scripture, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls, his friend can help him up, but pity the woman who falls and has no one to help her up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And even more, a cord of threefold strands is not easily broken. There is in the movie a scene of such intense vulnerability that it left me shaking afterward. Absolutely no violence happened in it, although there was a threat of violence. And in fact, actually, it made me completely mystified about why this movie got an R rating. There's a couple F words, and that's about it. 
And then I actually looked at the box that the DVD came in. And in a wonderfully terse sense of humor, right next to that R rating, they had a quote from the film critic A.O. Scott, who said it perfectly. The rating seems to reflect, above all, an impulse to protect children. That learning that people are lonely and that life can be hard. It's almost the kind of impulse that kept, it seems, the Buddha's father before he became the Buddha, wanting to give him everything in the world. And thereby, it only made his awakening that much more difficult when he realized that people can be lonely and life can be difficult. One of the reasons why Wendy and Lucy is such a great work of spiritual art, particularly, is that it invites us to take a look at how we see the world and also the blind spots, our spiritual myopia in the way that we view the world, and invites us to look deeper and to see, to view, to, as the Hindus say, take darshan, which is not just a way of venerating the idol and the icon in the Hindu religion, but it's a way of looking so deeply into the reality of what one sees represented in the deity, that we enter into a deeper way of seeing this life. Not overlooking, but looking so that we can see. Looking with eyes of compassion, looking with eyes of love. Because it is so easy, we all know this, to see by rote. To look ahead only at our own plans, to look ahead only at our own choices. And through this, to forget that there are others who share the journey with us. This is the meaning of living a life of darshan, of having our eyesight be a form of veneration, of venerating everything that we see. And in enlarging how we see, we might also remember to enlarge who we are. Now, I mentioned that Wendy and Lucy really reminded me of a Depression-era film and what people might have experienced, did experience during the Depression. And so it brought to mind probably the most famous piece of literature associated with that time period, which is John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but Grapes of Wrath was deeply influenced by Ralph Waldo Emerson, by our great thinker and teacher in our Unitarian movement 150 years ago. In The Grapes of Wrath, one of the primary characters, Tom Joad, tells the story of the former preacher, Jim Casey, who was a one-time former very deeply dogmatic believer and preacher. And the story by which he was called out of and beyond the pulpit and called to reject his former dogmatism by the call of a deeper spirit. This is how Tom Joad tells the tale. Now, I've been thinking about what Jim Casey, what he said. And I can remember it. I remember all of it. Says one time, Jim, he went out into the wilderness to find his own soul. And he found he didn't have no soul that was his. Says he found he's just got a little piece of a great big soul. This is Emerson's oversoul. The fact that we get our living and our being just as we get our breathing from a common source that animates all of us and all of our lives. At the deepest level, what Tom Joad was saying, what Jim Casey experienced, and what Wendy and Lucy invites us to reflect on, is that at the deepest level, we are connected. When we belong to this life that is larger than our own, 
It is reflected in each other, and it is the best way that I know of holding each other aloft when we fail or when we fall. This is the great gift of being a part of spiritual community. This call to an absolutely unsentimental, completely necessary, absolutely essential love. Be with one another. Bear each other's burdens. Share each other's joys. Years ago, I heard such a beautiful articulation of this in a workshop. I was doing it at a congregation not my own, and I was helping them with some discernment around their worship life, what they liked, what they didn't like, what they were going to jettison, what they were going to keep. And at some point, they got to the part of their service that's a little bit like what we do. Not quite, but a little bit like what we do. Their version of sort of passing the peace and talking with each other and getting connected during the service. And a bunch of people in the room, the leaders of this congregation, started to pipe up and say, That feels very touchy-feely to me. I don't know if it's proper. I don't know if this is church enough. Maybe we want to think about getting rid of it. And then a woman who had been very quiet the whole time, even though she was one of the leaders of the congregation, with tears in her eyes and on her cheeks, she said, I first started coming to this church a number of years ago. When because of an illness that I had, I was deeply isolated and totally alone. Because of the kind of illness I had, I didn't get very much human contact. But I came to this church week after week after week, and what we are talking about was my favorite part of the service. Because it was the only time in my week when I knew that someone, someone, going to touch me. The only time in my week when I knew that someone was going to touch me. They kept that part of the service. This is the experience of grace. Of being a part of of being accepted even when we think we are not acceptable, of being loved even when we think we are unlovable, of being worthy even when we cannot articulate our own worth. Some of you know the loving-kindness meditation, the metta meditation from the Buddhist tradition. My favorite version of this is by the Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg. And it continues, as some of you might know, with a regular mantra, sort of starting with the self and edging outward in expanding concentric circles of belonging and of loving kindness. And at one point, we expand in this guided meditation to the point saying these words, may you live in safety, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. We expand to a point where we focus on someone we don't know very well yet someone we are likely to be indifferent to. And when I was watching Wendy and Lucy, Wendy came immediately to mind. person who performs some role, some function perhaps in my life, menial we might call it, I might call it in an elitist way, Wendy came to mind. Wendy, may you be happy. Wendy, may you be healthy. Wendy... May you be safe. Wendy, may you 
live with ease. At the end of the loving kindness meditation, before we leave that time, Sharon Salzberg says these words. We connect into these phrases, aiming the heart in this way. We're opening ourselves to the possibility of including rather than excluding, of connecting rather than overlooking, of caring rather than being indifferent. I know many of us have daily spiritual practices, but I think that if our daily spiritual practices do not in some way connect back with these words, whatever the form of your practice is, it does not pass the spiritual sniff test. Are we choosing to connect or choosing to remain indifferent? Are we choosing to love or choosing to close our hearts? Are we choosing to do the work of God, of the spirits, of the community? Or are we saying, I want to remain unto myself entirely? To offer the world this is to be nothing more and nothing less than a channel of grace. It is to offer the world the deepest gift that we can, which is a large and enlarging and growing heart. It is to offer the world a remedy to the world's loneliness and to be a source of indeed, yes, even salvation, to be a source of goodness and kindness. This is always our call. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Connected God. I would pray that all of us would have the capacity of enlarging and opening our hearts this day. That we would, with each new dawn, ask ourselves in the many ways that we can. How will I be alive and awake to the presence of love in my life and be a channel for the stream of love this day. May we know that there are so many lonely people and perhaps we are they. And so may we commit our hands, our hearts in mindful practice to lessen the tides of human isolation, to diminish human sorrow, and to be called out from the place of loneliness and to know the deeper place of communion. This is my prayer this day. Amen.